Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two and a half segments today, unusually. Joel Shalit will talk about the right's victory in the Israeli elections. Then we'll hear a brief leftover bit in Iran from last week's show with Mohammed Salameh. And then Megan Kinch will analyze a labor upsurge in Ontario. On November 1st, Israel held elections. The country has a parliamentary system with multiple parties, so the prime minister isn't directly elected. But the clear victor was the right-wing former PM, Benjamin Netanyahu, who will form a government in coalition with even further right religious parties. The left was crushed. Netanyahu, known as Bibi, led the country from 2009 to 2021. He left office under criminal indictment and was succeeded by a weak government of national unity. Bibi's now coming back and almost certainly worse than ever. Here with more is Joel Shalit, a frequent behind-the-news guest. Joel is an Israeli-American journalist who's been on this show many times before. He's the editor of The Battleground, thebattleground.eu, which aims to be a voice of calm truth-telling on European society and politics. He also comments on EU and German affairs for the Israeli broadcaster I-24 News. His books include Israel vs. Utopia, The Anti-Capitalism Reader, and Jerusalem Calling. Joel Shalit. So, <laughs> many distressing election results around the world. Oh, the U.S. results were not as terrible as one might have feared. But uh, Israel now has a return of Bibi Netanyahu. A lot of us thought we were rid of that guy a little while ago, and now he's back. Um, it's like a horror movie. He just will not disappear. What's up? Bibi was always going to come back. It was never a question of if but when. The so-called government of change that has uh, – existed for the last year and a half, uh, more or less, uh, had, was always a, a monstrosity that was doomed to fail. And ideologically, it was really no different than Likud uh, and the Likud-led coalitions that, that BB has led since, uh, what, 2009, 2010? Uh, the, 2009, excuse me. Uh, the, um, the difference I, with the quote-unquote government of change was that it was simply not religious, they were secular neoliberals and security nationalists for the most part, with a couple of token uh, uh, left-wingers in the coalition, in the Labor Party uh, being represented in the coalition, and Merits, uh, the longstanding Social Democratic Party that has been the the mainstream home for the Israeli left for the last 30 years. And, and, And to some degree, they were punished for having been a part of that awful government under Lapid and Bennett. If you look at the the numbers where center left voters and left wing voters went in this election, Yair Lapid's uh, neoliberal Yeshatid party essentially gobbled up voters from parties like Meretz and Labor. Labor actually made it into the Knesset, uh, this time still in a very diminished form. Uh, Merits didn't by the tune of a few thousand voters, and people are horrified at what that signifies. So what does this say about the state of Israeli public opinion? Israel has been on a downward spiral politically for decades. For observer, long-term observers of Israeli politics, for Israelis on the left, what's happening right now was eminently predictable. I mean, the only people who seem surprised are American liberal Zionists who would prefer that a 1990s status quo was still the political logic governing the country, you know, where you had a you had labor-led governments, sometimes with Likud in coalition, where the rule of law was respected, where there was a peace plan, if not a peace process. And Israel could truly claim to be some sort of liberal democracy, albeit one with a large colonial occupation in the West Bank, Gaza, and Golan. This is, of course, a coalition government, as they mostly are. Um, what, what are uh, Bibi's coalition partners? That's what's so interesting about this government. This will, assuming that Bibi's new government is sworn into power, they're consulting with the president today, Herzog, we will have an Israeli government that consists primarily of right-wing religious and settler parties along with Likud. It will be 
as everybody has been saying, the most right-wing government Israel has ever had. Again, the politics of all of the coalition partners in Bibi's new government are no different from politics that have been present in every Israeli government for decades. The, the difference is the ethno-nationalist and theocratic concentration of politics in this government because of the parties involved. Uh, there's been a lot of noise made about Ben Gvir, the head of Otzma Yehudit, or Jewish power, because he's, you know, it, people first learned of him, particularly abroad last year during the May riots when he was running around Jerusalem brandishing a gun with his kippah. He's a disciple of Meir Kahan of Kach, the, the fascist party that was outlawed in 1994 in Israel. He's something of a criminal like Netanyahu insofar as he's been indicted for racism repeatedly and could have been, based on at least his rhetoric, one of Rabin's potential assassins. He's a very colorful character, and he also, like Bibi, can claim to come from a, a, a lineage that starts with the Irgun Zwei Lechumi, the uh, right-wing terrorist group which eventually birthed Likud. Menachem Begin was a member, and uh, ideologically, Bibi's father was related to the same continuum around the Irgun, a political continuum. It's fascinating. There's uh, Ben Gvir is sort of a perfect character insofar as he is a link between the right of the past and the right of the present. He's a national religious person, um, uh, a stream of religious Zionism, uh, which has been very controversial over the years, but has strong relations with ultra-Orthodox Judaism on a certain level as well. And it's right now serving as a conduit to radicalize the ultra-Orthodox community in many respects, uh, together with his other coalition, excuse me, his other uh, list partners in religious Zionism, uh, Noam, the homophobic party that's been getting a lot of press for their anti-LGBTQ politics and, you know, desire to eliminate gender studies from Israeli education. Well, that's a core to the right around the world. It's really amazing. In Italy, uh, where I've been doing a lot of work recently, Georgia Maloney has been saying the exact same things. It's like they're, it's like they all are working with the same American campaign organization, giving them the same talking points, whether it's in Sweden with the Sweden Democrats or whether it's in Italy with uh, Fratelli d'Italia or uh, or Otsma Yehudit or Noam, this this party I was just mentioning. There's there's a there's an ideological consistency on the far right in all of these countries, which is remarkable given how separated all of these political streams were on the right as recently as 20 years ago. Now, uh, Ben Gvir, um, he has some fairly extreme views. He wants to expel uh, Arab citizens who are the perceived as disloyal, for example. He wants to ex expel left-wing Jewish Israelis, too. How widespread are these views? A lot of Israelis are really disenchanted with the political status quo, particularly young Israelis who cast a disproportionate number of votes for these parties. Israel is horribly expensive. It's one of the reasons I don't live there. I can't afford it. Uh, and Israel is, uh, there's a lot of social injustice. Uh, the neoliberal turn in Israel and the vast amount of money that's been generated from the tech industry and also to a certain extent from the security industries. Uh, have created an enormous gap between haves and have-nots. And historically, the religious community, uh, whether uh, particularly the Mizrahi uh, or, or you know, Middle Eastern uh, ultra-Orthodox community that votes for parties like Shas, really come from, from nothing. And they, they're structurally discriminated against to this day. And parties like Otsmayeudit feed off that disenfranchisement. They're typical fascist parties in that regard. They appeal to working class anger and anxiety, and they turn it on the Palestinians. But fascist parties also have friends in the elite. Uh, how does that work in Israel? Ben Gvir got Bibi's ear, and Bibi is classic Ashkenazi elite. Clearly, he's been useful to Bibi and his coterie in the Likud, so they can use these, these Mizrahi far-right religious settlers like Ben Gavir, who, by the way, is of Iraqi background. He is not the typical sort of American Ashkenazi religious nutbag uh, that you find in the settlements. He's Middle Eastern. And, and as long as these people can be useful to you know, the traditional 
Ashkenazi right-wing political kingpins in the country, they'll get used. Is there a control? Are their dominance still firmly established? Or is uh, this new breed uh, moving in? Israel is still very much dominated by the old Ashkenazi families and money uh, that have led the country until now. But what everybody is saying about this new government is it's a window onto the next OS of the country's right, one which is dominated by Jews more of color, of Middle Eastern background, and more religious. And there's a lot of trepidation, particularly around the religious nature of the right as it's evolving through this election. You hear lots of remarks about a Jewish Iran in the making where, the you know, a halakhic democracy, so to speak, halakha, Jewish law, that's what that means. So it would be like, let's say, a Jewish religious sort of version of Orban's illiberal democracy where, you know, the judiciary is subordinate to parliament and to religious and political leaders. And, and Judaism plays a much more explicit role in public education than it even does now, which is quite significant as it is. Aren't most Israelis secular, more or less? That's a stereotype that is changing. It must change because Israelis are more religious than they used to be, a lot more religious. And a lot of this is a consequence of the control of the education ministry that Bibi has continually given to religious his religious uh, uh, coalition partners over the years. So what happened? Why has Israel moved so far to the right uh, in an explicitly fascist direction, really? There's very, a lot of very conventional arguments that have been made on the left that all of this was foreseeable because of the occupation, that the occupation radicalized Israeli politics to the right because the occupation is inherently undemocratic and colonial and driven by theo-colonial instincts. And so the more influential that the settlers become in Israeli politics, the more that they will eventually transform Israeli politics in their own image. How much of a share of the population are those settlers now? There's 700,000 at present, approximately more or less. But in percentage terms, that's not an enormous dominant share of the Israeli population. No, but the role of the occupation in in Israeli politics uh, is disproportionate to the number of people living in the occupied territories. The occupation has been the major project of Israeli politics for the last, since 1967. I'm speaking with the journalist and writer Joel Shalit. And then uh, you've talked about the increasing mobilization of the Orthodox population in a right-wing direction. Uh, let's talk a bit more about that and how significant a number are they and how, how do they have this, um, how are they punching above their weight? What's interesting about the situation as it stands is that historically the ultra-Orthodox, and we have to say ultra-Orthodox because that's the community we're immediately referring to, the ultra-Orthodox community was not as politically engaged as it is now. Something has happened in the last decade during especially the Netanyahu period that the ultra-Orthodox got radicalized and got more interested in politics than they than the rank and file ultra-Orthodox had taken in previous years. You know, there's a stereotype that we have in Israel and also, I think, in the American Jewish community too, that the ultra-Orthodox are have an anti-Zionist reputation and that they just want to be left alone to study. And obviously, they have some stakes in public policy. They always have. But being ideologically flexible and aligned with different parties over the course of Israeli history was more their MO than being permanently ensconced on the right. Also, the ultra-Orthodox in Israel tend to be the poorest. They live on government subsidies. They live on donations through the community. Um, this sounds like my neighbors in Williamsburg. Yeah, they're very similar. There are a lot of ultra-Orthodox who live in Israel, who speak the same Yiddish, and do the exact same things in Israel that they would do in Williamsburg. There's no difference. It's just that they have obviously more attachment to the land of Israel for religious reasons than they do have attachment to Brooklyn. I only recently learned that Menachem Schneerson never actually visited Israel in his life. Ultra-Orthodoxy is a diaspora invention. It's from Eastern Europe. It's heavily from Ukraine, uh, also like Zionism. There was no ultra-Orthodoxy in biblical Israel. <laughs> there were other things, but it is a European and heavily American religious movement and historically ambivalent about statehood. I remember a good example, especially for your audience, 
Berlin used to host an annual, what they call Al-Quds Day uh, parade uh, in Charlottenburg, a, a historically former Jewish neighborhood, and very wealthy. And uh, it would start around the, an area of Charlottenburg called Adenauerplatz. And you would see uh, Hezbollah flags being waved. You would see uh, flags with uh, Bashar al-Assad and Khomeini's image being displayed by thousands of people walking down the street in hijab, also obviously Palestinian flags. Yeah, it was an annual summer event that got a lot of press coverage because it was so anti-Israeli in Berlin. You know, the Germans would have a heart attack every time one of these events happened. And I covered it several times for different media and um, photographed it heavily. And uh, almost every time I went, the parades were often led arm in arm by Haredim, by ultra-Orthodox Jews of the Neture Karta sect, who are anti-Zionists. And to see these Haredim walking arm in arm with people who were often identified to me by friends as Palestinian militants uh, and Islamic militants who were of Palestinian background was always mind-blowing in a big European city like this to witness. And, And they would wear badges and carry signs saying Judaism is a multicultural religion and not nationalist and things like this. So the equation that Germans would sort of take away from seeing these parades were like, the Haredim were like the, these. These Haredim, as far as they understood the Haredi phenomenon, uh, were communicating a kind of Judaism that was left-wing and inclusive and tolerant and anti-occupation. And so that is a common stereotype of Haredi politics that no longer holds, even though Neture Karta still exists. Otherwise, it's kind of like people think that they're this sort of benign kind of fuzzy community like you see in a series like Shizel on, <laughs> on Netflix, where they're obviously conservative and a little backward, but they're you know fundamentally nice people. Um, and they're like most Israelis, they're, they're mixed. They're mixed politically. They're mixed ideologically. They're becoming Israeli. They're getting adjusted to being lords of the land, to quote the title of Akiva Eldar's book. It's not inconceivable to imagine that what we call national re- uh, religion in Israel, it will eventually reshape Haredi politics and, and to a certain extent, Haredi religiosity. And it makes sense because they're at some point, I mean, they, they will be the majority Jewish population in the country. Just based on birth rates? Yes. They're in, I have Haredi cousins who live in B'nai Brak, and my cousins have Lots of kids, far more than I could ever imagine having myself. And they're often stereotyped for having like 10 kids in a family, living in a tiny room with no money in the middle of these religious neighborhoods outside Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem or at Shemesh. Their numbers, their sheer numbers will change the character of Israel politically and ideologically and culturally and already aren't. Well, they're also changing American jury, aren't they? I mean, they're reproducing far more rapidly. And then uh, I was just reading yet another anguished article about the rate of intermarriage among American Jews. It's really a very dramatic development. Every mainstream religion has its fundamentalist or traditionalist equivalents. And the Haredim are our version of that. The way that Israeli politics has evolved with the occupation and nonstop conflicts has had a tremendous impact on their spirituality, uh, regardless of whether they agree to serve in the army or not, which is always a big problem with Haredim. You know, there's a lot of secular resentment that historically they don't want to serve in the army and they don't have to serve in the army like secular Israelis do. So what's going to happen with this new government? What do you expect uh, this latest uh, iteration of Bibi Netanyahu is going to look like? I think that the West will find a way to tolerate this version of Bibi's government just as it's tolerated the other versions of Bibi's government. Bibi is the only man they can go to because he's the only persistent face in Israeli political leadership. And Israel plays an increasingly important role in the Western alliance. Uh, the, the, you know, if you look at the uh, scale of our defense exports and our military and strategic relationships with NATO, 
or a member of Partnership for Peace, for example, Israel is, an, is becoming an ineradicable player in the Western defense architecture, particularly if you look at all of the military exchanges that now go on between Europe and Israel, the amount of military equipment that Israel is selling to Europe is becoming instrumental in sort of arming Europe, so to speak. The Germans have just announced that they're purchasing the Arrow uh, anti-ballistic missile system from Israel as, as their new main anti-missile umbrella. Things like that. You know, there's a big story in the Israeli press, some of which has been repeated in, uh, in the foreign press about uh, German drone pilots training in Israel for the first time because the Germans have decided to buy more combat drones to patrol their airspace because of the war in Ukraine. And so what about um, the domestic Arab population, which is what, about 20% of the total? Um, yeah. I imagine their future is not terribly bright. No, and this is the big question, is whether under Netan, whether under this new government or, the, or further right governments that follow, there are going to be worst case scenarios, for example, where there is more explicit forms of uh, population transfer that gets encouraged or enforced. It's not unreasonable to assume that when people like Itamar Ben-Gvir drive around Nablus, he imagines that that one day could be a Jewish city or Ramallah even. The problem with the national religious leadership in the new government is they increasingly feel emboldened to propose or imagine forms of ethnic cleansing that we thought had been consigned to 1948. And there's basically no left or even a center left in Israel, is there? No. As I said earlier, Yair Lapid absorbed a lot of the left-wing vote, and that helped prevent yeah, Israel's most sort of long-standing left party merits from entering the Knesset. That's a big deal. On the one hand, those voters may have voted for Yeshatid strategically, but on the other hand, that also represents to a certain extent a potential political transformation of left-wing voters to the neoliberal right. Uh, and this is a process that's been going on for years. I mean, labor, the, lab, uh, the Labor Party was the first to introduce neoliberal economic reforms in Israel and sanitize free market capitalism. <laughs> I mean, that's an, also a common pattern in Europe. Yes, it's exactly the same. A lot of the things that you see happening in Europe over the last 30 years happened in tandem in Israel as well. No difference. And I imagine that uh, the future of the occupation is only more the same, only worse. Absolutely. I have a hard time imagining that the Palestinian Authority is going to survive. That's definitely on the agenda of the religious Zionism list as well as Bibi. I mean, Bibi has slowly move from being, you know, a Thatcherite neoconservative to a far-right neo-fascist in the mold of his father, Ben Sion. And without a Palestinian authority, what then? How do they govern the occupied territories? The one-state solution has been effectively imposed. The problem is there are 5 million people or close to 5 million people who have not been made citizens. So the Palestinians either who live in the occupied territories either need to stage a successful struggle to be recognized by the Israeli state and to transform the Israeli state into a, a multi-ethnic uh, state, or there's going to be a lot of bloodshed. You don't have to be on the far left to have these kinds of concerns. They're real. There are secular Israeli conservatives who are scared of the exact same things. That was the Israeli-American journalist Joel Shalit. Regular listeners may recall that last week's show featured an interview on the popular upsurge in Iran with a couple of artist activists, Mohammed Salome and Mina Khani, both based in Berlin. Both felt the theocratic regime had lost legitimacy and was under serious threat of collapse. Because of time constraints, I had to cut it down fairly radically. Here, rescued from the cutting room floor, is an interesting analysis from Mo on the tripartite nature of the Islamic Republic's power structure, which is showing major signs of weakness in all three points. The Islamic Republic is not just the government or the state that controls the borders of Iran or what happens within the geography called Iran. Starting after the end of the Iraq war, the strategists of the Islamic Republic realized that they got to have a multi-pronged approach to the question of the Islamic Republic. So we saw the establishment of two other Islamic republics. One is this quasi-notion of the Shia nation that extends outside of Iran into Iraq, into Syria, into Lebanon, and into the south of Saudi Arabia with a, with a majority Shia population down there. And so they created this quasi 
state. And within that, they kind of exported their, I'm borrowing some of Mina's ideas now that she didn't mention. They exported this type of Islamic anti-imperialism and anti-Americanism. And with that, they kind of destroyed the left in this context. So not only in Iran, but in Iraq, in Syria, and in Lebanon, you cannot have any kind of like leftist or communist anti-Americanism. And in fact, the left has disappeared in these societies because if the main antagonism between these societies with America, then this Shia militancy with its ideology has come forth and basically has dominated this discourse, right? So then now we, we have this secondary Islamic Republic, which is basically the Islamic Republic outside of the borders of Iran and within this region. And then there's a third Islamic Republic, which is sort of like the, the diaspora. And Iranian government invested a lot of money into making sure that they have some kind of grip on the opinions of the diaspora. So basically through establishment of media channels or basically placing the pro-Iranian people in certain mass media like BBC or other sort of like Western media, they made sure that, that the criticism of the Islamic Republic never go deep enough to actually challenge it. These three Islamic Republics are simultaneously sort of like undermined. First of all, the diaspora now is like the one that basically is totally out of their hand now. We've been more or less able to liberate the diaspora from this type of like passive pro-Islamic Republic opinion. The radicalization of the diaspora is very important, reflected in the mass demonstrations happening in Berlin, in Washington, in Toronto, and in other cities. You could never even imagine or dream to have these types of crowds out because people had connections, people afraid, people would like to travel, but, but also people didn't really feel that regime change is a good thing. The diaspora was made to believe that regime change is unattainable, is too risky, but now the diaspora is completely liber liberated. The second Islamic Republic in the region has also been kind of undermined through sort of like protests in Iraq that, that basically say, we don't want the Islamic Republic to control our faith. What you have in Lebanon is basically Hezbollah signing a peace deal with Israel, separating itself more and more from the ambitions of, ambitions of the Islamic Republic. And inside Iran, you see the state is facing its first real serious major crisis that more and more looks like not just an upheaval, but an actual revolution. That was the artist and curator, Mohammed Salome. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the opening movement of Beethoven's String Quartet No. 14, performed by the Yale Quartet. Last Friday, workers in Ontario's public school system walked off the job to object to a piece of legislation known as Bill 28, which imposed a terrible contract on them, banned striking, and for good measure, insulated the government from any judicial challenge to the law. Because of the strike and its widespread support, the right-wing provincial government of Doug Ford has withdrawn the law, at least for now. The ban on striking violates Canada's charter, but Bill 28 used a legal mechanism, the notwithstanding clause, that allows the government to suspend those rights in the case of some emergency. Since it's usually possible to invent an emergency, that clause neutralizes a supposedly fundamental right, provoking widespread outrage. The workers are represented by the Canadian Union of Public Employees, CUPE. The other major public sector union, the Ontario Public Service Employees Union, supported the strike, as did some private sector unions, in a rare gesture of broad solidarity. Here with more is Megan Kinch, a union electrician and labor journalist based in Toronto. 
What provoked the subsurge of, of labor action in the first place? This is like the first in a series of sort of post-COVID labor things. We have like really high unionization rates in the public sector. Basically in Canada, we have like maybe 75% public sector unionization rates. But um, private sector unionization rates are about like 19 or 20%. So there's a really big difference between the public and private sector. And the thing with the public sector is whenever they go on strike, their employer is the government. And to a greater extent, like we have had more and more back to work legislation. And so really for all strikes, uh, it's not just the employer they're dealing with. It's always the government. And uh, a lot of the most affected public sector workers are in healthcare, um, especially in nursing. And they're not able to strike because of uh, essential services laws. So this is really the first post-COVID strike we're seeing with people dealing with major inflation. And uh, the conditions in, in schools have really taken a huge downturn and there's just so much pressure been put on all the staff in schools for that. The teachers did have a, a job action and and, uh, and the legislative back to work uh, recently and this is a reaction to that. The workers represented by QB, these are not teachers, these are education workers, so janitors, secretaries, uh, educational assistants, ECE workers. These workers are really in a tough spot. Some of them are making 49000 a year, which in Toronto is, is absolutely not a living wage. And they've really been hit hard by the current of COVID. And there's been so much asked of them, right, with the collapse in like youth mental health. These are the people who are really picking up the pieces and then making low wages and then trying to do like care work at home as well. And in most cases for people working in this sector, and they've just been hit hard. That was a big part of why these people in particular were the ones to, to do this wildcat strike. But also for the first time, we're really seeing like a lot more solidarity between education unions. The education sector is split between quite a few different unions. Um, you have, um, well, you have QP, which represents about half of education workers, and but there's so many different school boards. So even among these job categories, like the EAs and the ECEs, so some of them belong to QP and some of them belong to OPSU. And in the past, uh, we haven't really seen a lot of like sectoral solidarity when there's been bargaining. Like I remember once the janitors went on strike and they kept the schools open and they just got filthier and filthier. But because it's janitors, EAs, and ECEs, like the system can't function without that. But we're also seeing solidarity from the teachers uh, this time, and and between OPSU and and QP, like OPSU walked out in solidarity with QP, which was a uh, that was eight thousand workers who were in this sort of wildcat walkout in solidarity. That's a pretty big move. And then we're also seeing for the first time solidarity with the private sector. The Doug Ford government, which is a conservative government, their popular base of support is among construction workers, developers, uh, people who live more in the suburbs. And I think they were counting on the support of some of the private sector unions, especially the construction union unions in this strike. But the construction unions actually said, no, we are actually for the right to to bargain, uh, which was somewhat surprising. We, I feel like as, as rank-and-file workers, we were not sure where our union was going to come down on this. Like, we were doing a lot of sort of rank-and-file pressures to try to pressure our leadership to make better statements and that were more in solidarity with the teachers. But uh, but in the end, the construction unions did say that, you know, they're for the right to bargaining, you know, even when it's public sector workers. What has the Ford government been doing uh, with the schools, though? They're putting a squeeze on, right? I think one thing to remember is that public schools in Canada are still the majority of schools. Even most rich people will send their kids to public schools. We don't have a robust private system. There are private schools. They're legal. They exist. Even Stephen Harper went to public high school, right? Like, so Stephen Harper, the former ultra-conservative prime minister of Canada, he actually went to public school in this super-rich area known as Leaside instead of going to Upper Canada College, which is like the private school, which is actually in exactly the same neighborhood, because he knew that it would damage his election chances to be prime minister or be a politician if he went to private school. So we have Doug Ford, and then we have his minion, who's this guy, Leckie. So Leckie is this like super young, ultra Christian conservative, super right wing, educated uh, entirely maybe homeschooled or private schooled in Christian schools, went to a private Christian college, no experience in the public school system, not a parent. And so he's been the minister of education and he's been this super hated, super polarizing figure. Canadians want to think that somebody like that is more American style. And we don't like to think that we have our own homegrown, like, Christo-fascist private school types here, you know, but but we... This is disappointing to an American. You're supposed to be the nicer version of us. <laughs> We're a very similar society, so everything that you can find, you can usually find a, a mirror image. This guy, Leckie, is a super minority. He doesn't represent, like, a huge swath of society, I think, in the way that someone like that would, would be represented in the States. Leckie being the Minister of Education was in itself an attack on the public school system. And it was like pretty clearly an attempt to try to really destroy 
public education. And we're seeing also an attempt to destroy public health. And they sort of come together and they've sort of used the pandemic as an excuse to be like, oh, well, the pandemic is making our hospitals collapse. And it's like, well, obviously, like hospitals and schools needed extra support in the pandemic and they just weren't getting it. Kids missed like almost two years of school in Ontario because we had very long lockdowns. And so the kids having missed nearly a year of school, then they want the kids to to be at the same level of testing. So, you know, the kids are then going to do these grade three tests and they're not doing well and there's no real extra resources. So public health and public education really needed extra resources in this time and they're just not getting them because they really want them both to collapse because they want to set up private parallel systems, private hospitals and private schools and voucher systems. And that's that's the clear goal of the government. So it's not in their interest to put any money into schools or, or raise wages or, or anything like that. With hospitals, we're seeing a lot of nurses and doctors, but especially nurses and uh, other care workers, like just quitting due to burnout. Because they're not allowed to strike because of legislation on that, they're just leaving individually due to individual burnout, especially nurses, because often people who go into the nursing profession are often women. They often have their own caregiving responsibilities for either elders or children or both. Trying to do that on top of working shift work with the increasingly bad conditions with COVID and it's really been a disaster for a lot of them. And people are just leaving the healthcare industry, often not by choice, often like collapsing. A similar thing is happening with the education workers, especially the ECEs and the EAs, the early childhood education workers, which uh, work in kindergartens and the EAs, the educational assistants, which work mostly with disabled children. They're just not making very much money. And so th- this is the sector that's making 49000 a year, which is just not a living wage in Ontario, especially in Toronto. Especially with the housing crisis and with uh, child care crisis, it's just really been a, been a disaster for them. And I think rather than burning out individually, they've decided to take collective action, which is pretty cool. The health care system and the school system in Canada run at the provincial level? Yeah, so it's a bit complicated. So healthcare and education are both provincial responsibilities, but they get a large amount of funding from the federal government. So there's federal government transfers. Now, sometimes those transfers come with strings, like this must be spent on such and such, and sometimes they come with less strings. So for instance, the liberal federal government has been trying to roll out this $10 a day childcare plan. Because childcare is a provincial responsibility, they send the money to the provincial government, which is then in charge of implementing this $10 a day childcare plan. So because the Ford government, conservative government, hates the liberals, they're not interested in making this work. So they've actually like rolled it out in a way that it's not actually working and there's really no $10 childcare spots in Toronto. So it, it causes like some friction between the different different levels of government. And then they, so they both always blame each other for it not working. You know, so the province is like, oh, we need more money from the federal government. And then the federal government is like, well, the provinces aren't doing it right. So that sort of leads to a, a blame game because of the overlap. In, uh, in responsibilities and funding. What's the reaction of the union leadership been? Are they trying to cut deals or are they supporting the rank and file? I don't think that we can say that the rank and file, especially for education workers, if we're talking about postal workers, it's different. Um, but I don't think you can say that the rank and file is necessarily more militant or less militant than leadership. Especially with like school support workers, they don't have a long tradition of union militancy. Uh, they're often fairly isolated within the school. So it's hard for them to build the kind of shop floor solidarity that you get, for example, with the post office, because they all have to report to the main post office site. The interesting thing about this strike being a wildcat strike is this is not a sector that had a history of a lot of union militancy. This is not a sector that anything was really expected of. This is a big movement uh, on behalf of a group of workers that have not traditionally been super militant or super organized. And there's generally in the past been like not a lot of solidarity, like a solidarity strike between the workers who are organizing these two different unions, OPSU and QP, that hasn't really been a thing that's happened. So I'm not sure you can say that the union leadership is more or less militant. I think this was a big step and a necessary step for like both the rank and file and, and the leadership. Like we just haven't seen anything like this before in like recent history, not since the days of action in the 90s, which, you know, I was a kid, like, you know, I'm 40 now and I was a, in high school back during the Harris days of action, you know, which people hearken back to, but it's really, it's passed out of the living memory of a lot of the, the union movement in Ontario. What's the Ford government's reaction been to all this action? What everyone's saying is that the Ford government blinked. The government had this back to work legislation prepared. That's been the general end to most strikes for a long time. I mean, I was involved in a 2008-2009 strike with uh, QB as a teaching assistant education worker in a university, York University, which is famous for going on strike all the time. We were the first non-essential service to get legislated back to work. 
and they declared us to be essential. And it was like, uh, I'm teaching anthropology. <laughs> how, how essential that is. We didn't get a lot of support from the broader union movement, partially because we were like an unpopular group of rabble-rousing youth and a very small union. And they were preparing this back-to-work legislation. And I think it's become clear to the entire union movement that the right to strike is just really not guaranteed anymore. And that back-to-work legislation is being automatically proposed whenever there's any kind of action. And very quickly, like in in the past, back-to-work legislation, like they've let unions go on strike for a few weeks and then pass the back-to-work legislation. But now it's like, oh, you can't even let them strike for one day. So it's very clear to everyone that the back-to-work legislation is is really a, a serious problem. So uh, Ford proposes Bill 24, and uh, which was a back-to-work legislation, but containing some like more draconian provisions. Ford had a press conference where he said he was going to table Bill 24. He says he's going to do it next week. We'll see if that actually happens or not, uh, if they go back to work. So that's that's sort of the victory. Is it's, it's a defensive victory, but it's sort of a victory nonetheless. However, it remains to be seen if it's going to come out in like increased wages for the workers or better conditions like at the bargaining table. But the union movement has defeated like this draconian new legislation that was going to really make things worse. So, so that's something. And it also shows that even though Ford has a majority government, he, he can't do whatever he wants. It's something important to learn. I think people, because, you know, we often have minority governments in Canada where like, you know, like for instance, recently we had, uh, you know, Trudeau's liberal government was at one point backed by a liberal NDP coalition, you know, and when there's a minority government, people feel like there's room for social forces to create change. But uh, when there's a majority government, people often think that there's there's no hope and you can't can't make them do anything. And, and I think that this really shows that, no, when there's a majority government, there are still ways to fight back, even if you can't win the, the legislative battle, which is also an important lesson. I'm speaking with Megan Kinch, a Toronto-based union electrician and labor journalist. I forgot to talk about the, the notwithstanding clause, which was part of this bill. Part of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees collective bargaining rights, but there is a notwithstanding clause. And um, the problem is, like, when there's a notwithstanding clause, it's like, okay, we have this right only if we feel like it. It's kind of, you know, so there's been this sort of gentleman's agreement to not use the notwithstanding clause. But um, we have Ford invoking, this is the third time he's invoked the notwithstanding clause, and this is the first time the notwithstanding clause was used to override bargaining rights. That's another reason why the it's generated more protests and more union solidarity. But why are these notwithstanding clauses included in the first place? Like it's like like relying on these gentlemen agreements and that's that's your human rights. Like it's not really the greatest. And that has to do with like partly how the Canadian Constitution and the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms was never really there was kind of a bad protest with that, with the and with the Meech Lake Accords, it was never quite adopted partially because of Quebec and partially because of indigenous peoples didn't really feel like they were part of the process or, or were not or not part of the process. So Canada's legal frameworks are in some senses kind of weak and Canada's legal frameworks for the right to collective bargaining, um, like all of the sort of legal frameworks of Canada are a little bit, a little bit weak. And, and yeah, so that was, that was one of the big, the big problems is the notwithstanding clause, which they evoked uh, because of COVID or something. And what has the broader public reaction been to uh, all this? I don't think the broader public really cares about the notwithstanding clause or the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. In Canada, the Constitution or the Charter, these things are not like sort of in popular consciousness, really, in the way that in America they are, for better or worse. And people are not super, and people are often not super cognizant of what level of government does what, also. In some ways, it's a lack of civics education, but also there's just so much American media you know, for example, we have a first past the post election system, right, with ridings, and people just do not understand that the prime minister is not directly elected in the way that it is in the states because there's just so much American media. There's a lot of general lack of political awareness in in Canada, but I would say that the teacher, like this strike with the educational assistance, like it, it has broad popular support in a way that I haven't seen other strikes. Like usually when there's a strike, the public does not support it. Even other union workers who are like slightly affected by the strike or like very unsupportive generally most strikes have been super unpopular but this strike has actually been fairly popular generally people are not blaming the eas like they understand and the you know the other education support workers they understand that they're not making any money that they're in a terrible position in the schools that like schools are very difficult places lately and the other thing is that for ecs for early childhood education workers this is the best job for ecs Early childhood education workers working in the other parts of the childcare sector make way less money. Um, and the, a, a school board job is the best, best ECE job you can get. And it's still like so low paid that you can't pay your rent. 
most people know some people who are in that sector and they understand like you know women should not be and it's almost all women in 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 this uh you know women are going to college for like you know a two-year diploma and then making minimum wage uh in that sector and i think I think people are starting to understand that that's unfair. And people were generally pro this strike, especially because it was very short. So there was just, there was a day of action on Friday and then Monday, and then they're back. They're back Tuesday, um, pending forward, removing this bill, bill 28, and they're being collective bargaining. So there may be further rounds of strikes, but I haven't really seen a strike be this somewhat popular. And I think part of the issue is that in the past, like parents were really depending on schools for childcare and having gone through the disaster of like, you know, COVID lockdowns for like years of like no childcare and no schools. And there was one point where I couldn't work and I was forbidden from, you know, I work outside the home as an electrician, obviously I'm not working from home and uh, I couldn't work as an electrician. And I was actually forbidden from hiring childcare at first, like in the first lockdown, because childcare was not an exclusion for essential work. And then electrician was not put on the list of essential workers for some unknown reason, probably because it's mostly men who are electricians and and then women tend to be nurses. This is all very gendered, uh, a lot of these jobs. Anyway, yeah, I'm seeing quite a bit of public support for this job action, which is is really rare. And But it's also because the last few years have been such a disaster that it's like, okay, my kids are going to miss two days of school. Well, my kid had a fever last week anyway, and I missed three days of school. I missed an entire like you know year like because of COVID lockdowns. And, and people are less... Um, have less expectations that things are going to function normally. Like we've gotten used to rolling shutdowns for COVID. And so if there's a rolling shutdown for a strike, it's in some ways less of a disruption. Um, also because people are already like in a lot of trouble who are like single parents or anyone depending on the schools for childcare. What next for this? Are there, are there more job actions planned? Or- uh, what's next for this? I mean, so there's this perception that Ford is this, like Doug Ford is this kind of goonish character. He's sort of like, um, not classy, like not sophisticated, but sort of populist kind of character. But he's mainly riding on the coattails of his younger brother, Rob Ford, who was famous as the the Toronto's crack smoking mayor, who uh, was also a conservative, but he had a kind of charisma about him, even though he would like show up on the streets drunk and stumble around. Like he had a, this charisma and people kind of loved him in a in a way as this lovable buffoon. Um, Doug Ford is sort of the the goon enforcer brother of the lovable buffoon Rob. So it sort of depends on what happens. So there's this perception that the Doug Ford has blinked, that he's backed down. And if he feels perceived as weak, he might back down because he said he was going to repeal this bill like next Monday when the legislature sits again. But uh, depending on public sentiment this week and if he feels like, like, you know, so the union said, okay, we'll be back in the streets if you table legislation like this again or you know if you like i say it was a bad deal but can they really mount another another protest like this can they really do another day of wildcat action will this movement keep going like it's sort of unknown right so it's not known what ford's going to do exactly and it's not known how much militancy these education workers can do and how much solidarity there was. So the question is how much of the solidarity was against the draconian notwithstanding clause in the back to work legislation and how much of the solidarity, like will people come out if they're just asking for better wages, for example, that's sort of unknown and like will public support continue? So the balance of forces is kind of complex and we're not really sure what's going to happen from here with this particular strike. But I do think that the, you know, the, unprecedented collaboration between public sector and private sector unions, as well as collaboration within different unions in the education sector. I think that, you know, people are really seeing that that's going to have to be the way forward and that we're not going to be able to have smaller strikes like pitting against like other workers who are then working on sites where other people are on strike and 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 that kind of stuff. Like there, there's just going to be need to be broader collaboration between unions with with strike actions. I think that that's going to be the way forward from here. And finally, I think a lot of Americans would wonder, why does Ontario have such a reactionary government? How'd that come to be? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, I guess, you know, Canada isn't this worker's paradise that people think it is. Like, we do have our, you know, private school homophobic goon minister of education here. I mean, I don't know if people think that people like that exist in Canada, but they certainly do. I myself grew up in really traditional Catholic, like pro-military family and was forced into the military at 17 by my family. You know, this is not how Canada likes to present itself. This is not how people want to look at Canada. The fact is that 
like things like public education and public health, that has to be fought for constantly. Like it's not something that we just have and it's not contentious. And the fact that we have to sit here next to the states all the time, we're affected by these waves of like right wing propaganda and transphobia. Whatever happens in America has an echo here. And often that echo is like a few years later. So, you know, we can look at Doug Ford as as almost a kind of Trump, you know, with like slightly better hair, maybe. He represents the same class forces and he has a lot of the same style and, and aesthetic in a lot of ways, although maybe going less far and being like a little bit better on public health. But it's always a matter of degrees with Canada and the States. I think like, you know, we're often like 30% better or maybe 60% better on some other topics. But, you know, in international politics, Canada has always acted as like the, you know, little sister, good cop to, to America's bad cop, right? We, there's a long history of that from Vietnam War to Afghanistan to Iraq and, and wherever, right? And Canada is obviously built on stolen land and the relationship with indigenous people is incredibly terrible. And the amount of indigenous men who are in prison is just increasing every year and women also. And uh, the child child services and like there's all kinds of like really horrible stuff happening, especially when you look at um, indigenous populations in Canada that Canada would really like to sweep under the rug and present itself as this sort of like, you know, model liberal democracy it's not that, you know, like there, but, you know, it is a lot better in a lot of ways, you know, like we do have still public health care and public education and, and like our teachers are, are paid pretty well. Like teaching here is considered to be a, a, a good job and actually teachers make more than me as a union electrician in most cases, you know? So yeah, so there's, there's good points and bad points, but we, you know, we still have student debt, we have inflation we have like gentrification in cities and we have racism and, and we have all that stuff. We're not some kind of like like super paradise. It's not Sweden, but Sweden isn't Sweden anymore either. So I was actually literally about to say that. Like people, like we like to look at Sweden that way too, but Sweden is not Sweden either. Sweden has like, you know, racists and like horrible problems with immigrants not being able to assimilate and always being held. You know, like Sweden has its own problems too, right? I was Megan Kinch, a union electrician and labor journalist based in Toronto. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a little Canadian content from the Winnipeg band, The Weaker Thans. Our retired explorer dines with Michel Foucault in Paris, 1961. The explorer is a member of Ernest Shackleton's expedition to Antarctica a century ago. Why he was dining with Michel Foucault in 1961 is a mystery. Till next week, bye. Just one more drink and then I should be on my way. Leads up to your frostbitten feet. Oh, you're very sweet.